2016, and this is episode 144 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. Happy New Year. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Happy New Year to you, too. How are you? I am great. It's been a while since we we did a show. Sorry, everybody, but, you know, holidays and birthdays and New Year's and Fallout 4 got in the way. Yeah, especially the Fallout 4. Somebody has to save the post-apocalyptic world. That's very true. I, I I had, I don't know, seven days off work or so, and I had a list of 18 projects I wanted to get done. I think I got two of them done because of Fallout 4. Nice. Wow. My, my fiancé is calling herself a Fallout 4 widow at the moment. Nice. Yeah. So, anyway, how was, how was your holidays? It was awesome. Good. I got... A lot done, painting, and I still actually played up, played some Fallout 4 too, so apparently I just have some more self-control. Actually, I have kids who jeopardize the game system, so. Oh. Yeah. They're just helping your productivity. That's true. So so we're here to do that podcast thing we do. That's true. And uh, I guess we can go ahead and get into stories, but first... Just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employer. So, uh, yeah, I guess a couple of interesting things have happened since we last recorded, and we'll talk about many. some of those. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost too many to choose from. I know. I know. And, and, and but we can't cover them all because you got to get back to saving, you know, post apoc 2277 uh Earth, right? Well, yeah, somebody has to. <laughs> so, uh, so the the first bit of news we have comes from the Ukraine, and for those who have kept up with the news, on Christmas Eve there was a, a pretty big power outage in Ukraine, and at the time there was a lot of scuttlebutt that it was related to a cyber attack, and since then there's been quite a lot of you know analysis being done on different pieces of malware and whatnot. And indeed, it apparently was related to uh, to some malware. And ESET has, uh, I guess, a write-up. Although the linkage between this malware they're writing about and the Ukraine attack is a little tenuous. But, you know, I thought it was worth uh, mentioning on the show. So, uh Again, this is uh, WeLiveSecurity.com, which is ESET's blog. It's a breakdown of this uh, this piece of malware, which is actually a couple years old now. It's called Black Energy. And it's been used, uh, from what I recall, in a fair number of targeted attacks. Uh, what appears to be the case, and I've not found anything different, but the malware appears to be a wiper. Uh, although it does apparently also have uh, some... Uh, SSH backdoor functionality. It um, it, it actually if it's if it installs itself on a server, it starts up a drop bear SSH uh, daemon, 
which apparently looks like tries to masquerade itself as a you know as a, a standard run of the mill version of Drop Bear, but it has uh, has a back some backdoor functionality in it that lets you know, criminals in. So, um, you know, I, I don't think uh, contrasted with the Sony and Shamoon and Dark Soul attacks, you know, there's there's not doesn't appear to be to be a lot of innovation here. There's not a lot of discussion about how the how this uh, happened. Although, if you dig through some of the links here, ESET has a presentation that they did previously on Dark Soul, and apparently most of the the, the propagation of dropping is happening happening via uh, phishing emails. So, you know, I think uh, I guess two takeaways from this, or maybe three. Number one, phishing still really big problem. Shocker. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, number two, back your stuff up. And right. one thing I'll expand on the phishing. Phishing is merely the initial vector. The actual compromise vector could be many, many different things, and the payload could be many, many different things. So, uh, phishing as a tech, you know, as a technique, as a term, is really encompassing many, many different ways you could compromise a host. So, when people say, "How do you defend against phishing?" Wow, that's a big question because it depends on what is it they're sending. Are they sending you an attachment? Are they driving link. you to an, right. a link to an external web page? Is it a drive like download? Are they trying to capture credentials? There's so many different things you can do with phishing as the initial technique that it's tough to say how do you defend against phishing in and of itself. Yeah, and in this particular case, it appears that the uh, the, the mechanism of attack was uh, with a with an, a malware laden email, which exploited. Um, at least the, the the allegation is that it exploited uh, a vulnerability in Microsoft Office. So it was a yeah. it was a payload that someone had to open, and apparently, uh, the the in this particular case they were writing whoever the attacker is was writing on the consternation and, and news. You know, so so it's basically emails that were branded as information related to the. Ukraine, Russia uh, difficulties, I guess we'll call them. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I'm almost wondering if we should start trying to build some consensus around some new taxonomy around fishing. Uh, you know, fishing in and of itself is not precise enough. You know, uh, fishing with an attachment, with a malware attachment, fishing with a l- to a link, fishing, you know, we have things like spear phishing and whale phishing, but again, that isn't that really more denotes the target type, not necessarily the methodology. Uh, and I think phishing is, is almost too broad of a category to be referred to as a single term nowadays. I agree with that. You know, somewhat off topic, but, uh, you know, interesting as well. One of the uh, Microsoft put out a big patch Tuesday in December and one of the many patches, and I'm going off memory here, but had to do with, uh, being able to have a maliciously crafted email that didn't even need to be opened, it just needed to be previewed. Yeah, and an Outlook. It was a, it was a an zero-day outlook, yeah. outlook, right? Which could uh, pop a box as well. So, um, you know, patching is important. It, it is. It is. No, I, I think the other, one of the other big issues is kind of going back to, and I, I know I, I always take hell for saying this, but you know if you're if you were trying to defend against a a very sophisticated adversary who has zero day 
vulnerabilities like what Microsoft just patched, that's very difficult to to guard against because you know this is it's a it's an un, it's exploiting an unknown or previously unknown vulnerability, and in that particular case, didn't require any user intervention. All they had to do was, you know, uh, just receive it into their Outlook inbox. Yeah, and it's easier said than done, but that's where we keep sort of trumpeting the concept of we need to move probably away f- from solely focusing on prevention and into breach detection Yep. Uh, because prevention is going to continue to fail. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything around prevention. Prevention definitely uh, narrows your attack surface, definitely limits options of your attackers. It raises the bar. There's all sorts of reasons why prevention is valuable. But as a sole technique, a 100% technique, uh, I don't think it's enough. Yeah, I, I agree. So the, the the third point I wanted to bring up on this was related to the SSH backdoor. And this is actually going to flow into our next story a little bit. But, you know, that is, you know, if it, if you properly, you know, it, it, it kind of highlights to me at least the importance of properly limiting access in and out of your network. Right now, I now I, granted, in a in a sophisticated attack, you don't know necessarily all the ways in which people are coming at you. But if if somebody's dropping SSH servers on your server, right? Obviously, that's bad. That's a bad thing. Uh, but you know, they shouldn't have a clear path into your system, right? If if right. SSH is not uh, a required service on that system. Nothing should be able to talk to it on SSH. And this is where the basics of block and tackling come into play and doing really good, strong firewall security audits. Yeah. Firewall policy audits, uh, which are boring as hell and nobody likes to do them. And everybody's afraid of changing firewall policy because it might break something. But you take a risk if you don't. Right. I think it's also an opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to look for, going back to the monitoring point, looking for unusual traffic flows. I think in this particular case, the SSH server ran on an unusual port. I don't remember. Well, I agree. Unusual traffic flows and also good discovery scans with vulnerability tool, vulnerability right. management tool. Uh, if you are scanning all ports and suddenly something pops open that you're not aware of or shouldn't be there. But this also indicates that you've got really good asset management and really good configuration management, and you know what should and shouldn't be there, which is a tough, tough problem. A lot of people don't know what should be there and shouldn't be there, especially um, you know, perhaps one particular admin for that box may have that knowledge, but it may not be captured and shared, much less centralized in a way that could be sanity checked by a security team. It's a, you know, the basics of inventory management are really tough for a large organization, but things like this make it really important. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. So there's not a lot more to the story at this point, at least, related to the the attack on the Ukraine power plants. There's a lot of speculation about you know, what what caused the actual outage. You know, there was um, uh, ESET itself in their write up. They point out that uh, the, the malware apparently looked for a particular process name, which may associate to a, a a serial controller or a piece of HMI code, uh, but all that it did was actually you know, overwrite the binary. It didn't actually appear to do anything more than that. So uh, it's 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 very unclear at this point whether 
you know the outage was was related to the power company's computers just being you know <laughs> wiped clean or whether there was some other aspect to it that was you know opening switches or or what have you so you know watch this space i guess so our next story comes from uh, the crypto cryptographyengineering.com blog this is uh, Matthew Green's blog, and for those of you who are not familiar, Matthew Green is a professor of cryptography at, I believe it's John Hopkins, but I can't find that. Yes. Readily. Um, yes. Good. If it's, you, it's you know, it's on the top right of the blog post that well, we're see, looking I, at. See, I don't have my screen. Uh, whatever. So anyway. somebody's not prepared with appropriate materials for our show today. <laughs> So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to talk about to talk about this with our production executives. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, so anyhow, this is related to the Juniper backdoor that was announced a couple of weeks ago, I guess. Wait, wait, how, how many backdoors are we up to in Juniper now? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Numbers don't go that high, do they? <laughs> wow, was this just wow? This was a mess. I can't even wow. Yeah. So wow. So backdoored. So wow. So uh, for those of you who remember that the, the you know the big atomic bomb that was dropped related to Juniper, um, just kind of focusing on that particular event, there were two vulnerabilities. Number one was a backdoor in SSH, which basically had a hard coded password <laughs> that, if you recall, looked like a debug string. So it looked like some C code or C plus plus code. Um, and Matthew Green, <laughs> I thought it was pretty pretty funny. He he uh, he says on a technological awesomeness scale, that vulnerability rates about a two out of a ten, just above hitting a guy on the head with a wrench. Which okay, um, but he focuses because again he's a cryptography guy. He focuses on the other one, which was related to being able to decrypt VPN traffic. And this is fascinating. I really had not, I didn't have this level of insight into what was going on, but, but here's the steal. Here's the story. So um, Juniper or NetScreen OS apparently uses the dual ECB, dual ECR, ECDRBG, which uh, by the way, was removed from the NIST recommended list of uh, random number generators, I guess a month or two back. Um, anyway, they use that protocol or standard as a means to generate random numbers to set up their tunnels, which, you know, okay. Um, it uses elliptic curve cryptography. And one of the, one of the nuances about elliptic curve cryptography, at least in this particular uh, spec is it relies on this Q number, which is basically, think about it as a, a constant, right? It's a 32-bit number that, um, you know, what, what's, what's come out over the, the... Would you think of it like as a seed number to feed into the... It, it's, the seed is a little different, right? Okay. So it's a, this is more of like a tuning parameter. It still right. requires a seed, but it, this is think about this is a is like a tuning parameter, and uh, what what's happened over the previous years is that the default Q number that was issued in the NIST recommendations it came out was defined by the NSA, 
And if you um, if you have a certain amount of the the ciphertext or the you know the output of this algorithm, uh, and you know the Q number that was used, you basically can figure out everything about it. You know that you know its state, and then it'll it allows you to predict future values. So not a great thing. Well, and and to be clear, it was certain malicious types of Q numbers. I think. Not necessarily all Q numbers. The Correct. The way I read it is it was it's almost some collisions, uh, if you will, of uh, – in other words, he mentions here that the NSA generated it and then some leaks that came out by Snowden uh, provide strong evidence that NSA may have generated it maliciously. Right. Uh, and, and that the 32-byte Q, if generated by a malicious attacker, can allow said attacker to predict further outputs of the random number generator after seeing a mere 30 bytes of raw output from your generator. Right. So. If it's a malicious queue, you know it, um, and you see 30 bytes of raw output from your generator, you can then predict the future random number generator output and therefore decrypt the traffic. Right. But what but what NetScreen had done is they – well, it's not really clear if it was NetScreen or Juniper, but uh, they had picked a different queue number. So they didn't use – the Q number that was defined in the NIST spec, which came from the NSA. So that was good, right? That was Maybe. good. Maybe. Probably. Whatever. Right. But here's where it goes here's where it gets crazy, right? The code didn't change, right? So this this whole VPN thing is not a change in you know the logic of the code or whatever. They changed the Q number. So we're talking about now the alleged malicious outsider that got in somehow the unauthorized code change as it right. pertains to this code. was so all they did was the change. change the q value to a value they knew that they could use to predict the output of the code right of 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 the random number generator going forward yeah and that change apparently happened in 2012 which is an incredibly subtle change yeah now so, so as as uh, Mr. Green points out, you know, okay, that's not that's bad and everything, right? But you still have to be able to get, you, you still need to be able to see the output of the dual ECDRBG algorithm. You need you need the thirty bytes to be able to do anything with it. And, and, and this it's starts to get a little more complicated here. Yeah. So, up, kids. so, um, so what what apparently. Uh, came to pass is that there's a bug, a long-standing bug. Well, there, there's a little bit more to this. Okay, just to jump in, because we sort of built this the story around this dual EC and and the the key value. However, ScreenOS doesn't use dual EC in a normal way you would expect. True. All they're doing with dual EC is generating random numbers to feed a seed into triple des right. generator called ANSI X9.17. Yes. And since that generator is actually FIPS 140 approved and generally do sufficient and strong, uh, Mr. Green points out it's not clear why they're using the dual EC value. Uh, uh, so, But the good news is, again, kind of quoting a bit from the post, because they're using triple des with this ANSI X9.17, what you're seeing on the wire is not that raw output from the dual EC. This exactly. is an important point. It's not the raw output. So, so at this point, we're still fine. 
okay? Even though you've got the Q number uh, subverted, uh, and even though you know what it is, what you're seeing on the wire is not the output of the dually C, that 30 bytes you need to predict the future uh, random number code. What you're seeing is the output of the triple des. So, in theory, we're still safe at this point. Right. However. However, there's also a bug in uh, in in screen os's implementation which actually uh <laughs> hard you know it's it's really hard to say this with a straight face but it it, it leaks 32 bytes of data out of the you know out of that dual ec drbg algorithm uh, the, its implementation and so that what 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 goes really crazy here is that bug has existed for a very long time. It well predates everything that's happened here, right? And so now the discussion is, well, if in the past, you know, they they used a different Q number, you know, this this would have been potentially um, recoverable by whoever had that Q number at the time. And and now, you know, <laughs> conceivably. All that's really happened is that someone uh, decided to change the Q number so that either whoever was able to previously decode it now can't decode it, or somebody now who wants to be able to decode it can decode it. So um, this is a really, you know, in, in the in the realm of security, coincidences like this don't often seem likely, and. Um, now I'm not saying that that you know this is a long game uh, thing. I'm, I guess one of my my point is, it seems like there's a lot of deep insight to me at least, a lot of deep insight into uh, the code base here. Absolutely, this is an incredibly subtle change by somebody who had to be very knowledgeable of the way they've implemented this code. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. Notice we didn't say nation state. We said. <laughs> Very subtle, smart move. Uh, there's, there, there could have been much more brute force ways to do this. So now the next question is, we've got two different potential problems here. One, we've got you know, this, this, this basically SSH backdoor, um, and we've got this passive VPN monitoring problem. Uh, two different problems in the code introduced at different times, probably by different actors. We don't know for sure. Yeah. But one is a very brute force, sort of not very subtle, but effective, uh, you know, backdoor. And the other is a very subtle, very uh, sneaky way of monitoring VPN traffic. Right. And, you know, I guess the thing to keep in mind is the VPN issue is not incredibly useful unless you're able to intercept the traffic, right? It's not... It's not something that you can, uh, as a remote person you, or a remote attacker, you can just point at somebody's net screen and start capturing you know, VPN traffic. That's not how this works. You've got to you've got to have some kind of presence somewhere in the in the path between the net screen device or the Juniper device and the endpoint. Right. And you know that that's ISPs or intelligence agencies or you know. So, um, I guess 
maybe public Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of of different op, uh, you know different actors, I guess, in play there. But so what you're really saying is this is Comcast. They did it. It, it could be. <laughs> Damn it. Or, it, it! Sorry. I, <laughs> there's black helicopters now circling my house. That's that's right. Um, you know, there's some interesting. By the way, there's some interesting comments down in in on this on this blog about uh, from some people who uh, I'm not sure they work at NetScreen or Juniper, but the, one of the one of the comments somebody made was, you know, we've been working on uh, VPN code for a long time and often wonder who among our coworkers is on the take from different you know different nations. <laughs> Seriously, so I mean, this could—we don't know how this code got there. At least they haven't—they haven't told us. And the way they phrase it is "unauthorized code," right? Is really an interesting way of phrasing this because it doesn't rule out a malicious insider. It doesn't rule out an, um, a non-malicious insider or just a thoughtless insider, right? Um, I think that's I, unlikely, but it doesn't rule it out. To, to me, the the, the I, I don't know. Maybe it's it just could be me, right? But to me, the the choice of wording using unauthorized, it, at least in my view, rules out a a, a mistake by yeah. a, by a developer. And you know that went through about eighteen legal reviews before it was released. Yep. It's a very specifically chosen word. Uh, you know, the other thing is we don't really talk politics on this show, but one of the things Mark Green points out, which I think is an important thing to consider, is that right now, at least in the U.S. and some other um, Western countries, they're talking about uh, mandating backdoors into cryptography and various other encrypted devices and sessions and data for purportedly anti-terrorist reasons. One thing that, that Mark points out, which I think is, is fairly significant, is that assuming that Dually C, this particular Dually C, which was in essence able to be subverted by the NSA, was found in production code and in theory co-opted by uh, a non-government actor. So it's very difficult for a backdoor to ever only be a backdoor that's intended to be used only by law enforcement and national security agencies, it's very difficult for those things to ever stay only accessible to those agencies. And malicious third-party folks can usually figure out a way to exploit them. So uh, you have to be very careful when you start going down the path of adding intentional backdoors because uh, the chances of you being able to contain that backdoor to only your intentional needs mm, probably pretty slim. But I bet most people who listen to the show already know that and think that. As they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, I, I don't think we have too many senators or Congress critters listening to our show. So those are the people who really should probably understand that. True enough. So, so speaking of voters, oh, go, well, go ahead. One other thing. This, by the way, was a fantastic write-up, and I, I want to echo Jerry's uh, sentiments. It, Mark does a great job writing about this. Even if you don't understand much about cryptography, uh, he makes it very relatable, and it's a really interesting write-up. So if you get time, go ahead and read this. It's, it's, you know, this is a couple weeks old, but we were off for the holidays, and it's still a very relevant story. So check it out. Yeah, I agree. And, and by the way, like I said, I think I said it, if you don't follow Mark, if you don't read his blog, you know, I, I recommend it. He's, he's really a, a very interesting guy. So there you go. So um, moving on. 
to more more uh, U.S. politics here. So a couple, I guess it was about a week or so ago, uh, Chris Vickers, or Vickers or Vickery, boy, having some trouble here, um, found a database of 191 million voter U.S. voters' information uh, just kind of hanging out on the Internet. And I, I believe... Chris was also the one who found uh, a bunch of other Hadoop and, and uh, um, you know, NoSQL databases using um, Shodan, if, if memory serves. Yeah, I, I think I know somebody did. Yeah. I think it was him. Yep. And if you don't know Shodan, it's basically a search engine specifically for finding um, things that shouldn't be open to the internet that are open to the internet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and th- there's a if you're not if you're not familiar, there's a lot of people who uh, who use Shodan for humorous purposes. Like the one I saw yesterday, so uh, a lot of people troll for open VNC connections, unauthenticated VNC connections, and actually Shodan will uh, you know takes screen captures and so you can kind of see if uh, if something's open or not, and. Um, somebody was watching the whoever had the system installing uh, uh, Metasploit, which which was really funny, I, I thought. So anyway, uh, Metasploit being installed on a system that's open to the internet. Uh, so anyhow, um, yeah, I, we we got it. It's it's funny. No, apparently it isn't. So so uh, the deal here is that. Nobody really knows where this database came from. Apparently, there is a company called Nation Builders who compiles uh, voter information for use by political parties. And Nation Builders has denied that the data was stolen from them. They haven't denied that it was stolen from one of their customers, though. So it, it appears likely that the data, just given some of the analysis that's done in this uh, article on databreaches.net, uh, it, it appears likely that the data did originate from nation builders because I guess the the schema of the database matched a schema that was publicly published by nation builders in the past, so it was a little too, probably a little too coincidental there. Uh, however, you know, they're they're apparently in the business of selling or leasing that data to political parties so they can so those parties can you know do whatever they're going to do spam robocall you or (laughs) whatever however they're going to annoy you um and boy this this thing i i i would say got more outrage than i can remember i mean even the vtech breached and i don't think got as much outrage as this did um however you know that there's, I guess, from a security perspective, there's not a lot to say because, well, it was just wide open on the internet. Um, I think the, um, to me, what it says is, you know, if you're a data broker, uh, as Nation Builder is no doubt finding out right now, just because the data wasn't stolen from you doesn't mean that you're, uh, you know, you're gonna get off the hook if if one of your customers decides to you know to go off the the reservation so to speak so anyhow we'll uh we'll see we'll see what develops on this yeah 
Keep an eye on your data, people. Come on now. <laughs> but it was just open, you know, wide open right. on the internet. There's a weird story here. So we don't know that this was not necessarily malicious. We don't know that this was necessarily stolen. Normally when someone steals this, they'll do a dump on Pastebin or they'll advertise it or they'll... This one's weird. It just... it. To me, it smacks of some enterprising political party uh, trying, you know, d- uploading the data into a database somewhere in the cloud to do to do some clever analytics, and they just didn't close it up because you know that security stuff is hard. Yep. So, but you know what? There's a good news. There is. There is good news. So uh, the. Back a couple of weeks, a week and a half or so ago now, the uh, the U.S. government passed the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act. Hallelujah. Right. And so the story here is from Dark <laughs> Matters. By the way, that was very sarcastic. Yeah, just so you know. Really? They're the government. They're here to help. They are here to help. So the uh, for those who have been following this, the, the U.S. government has for a long time been wringing their hands at you know these cybersecurity problems and what are we going to do about these cybersecurity problems and you know here my my inter- you're the government do something why won't you, you do something the children think of the children true. so um you know and and so so apparently someone has been whispering into the ears of lots of congress people and the president you know, the problem is information sharing. Information isn't being shared right. And meanwhile, most people in the industry are going, eh, that's really not going to help much. And, We've and, only uh, got about 80,328 different information sharing mechanisms. Right. So now we have uh, one more. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not being controlled by the government, which makes it... Well, this really isn't either, so it's just... That's true. So it, it it you know I, I think the uh, the author he has a sentence in here which is really interesting and basically I, I can't find it right now but it, it goes something like this this appears to be another one of those pieces of legislation uh, where the the intention is to implement it and then figure out the the you know figure out the details later once it's passed and uh, and and so the the net point of the article is. There's lots of people who are freaking out about, you know, CISA passing and, oh, my God, it's going to be the end of the world from a privacy perspective. And his point is companies aren't going to share their information with the government. They There's really there's really no material protections that the lawyers and executives of companies are going to see in this new bill that are going to change their mind, whereas before, you know, People don't want to end up on the front page of the news. And he, by the way, points out that that's never, not ever really happened in the context of sharing information. But, you know, it might happen, so we don't want to share our information. Well, there's nothing that changes as a result of that. And so we should expect, probably, unless something else happens, that companies are still not going to want to share their information or share their, you know, their their incident information. Well, you've already got certain mechanisms out there in the various ISACOs to share information for various industries. You've got ISACOs? Yeah. Oh my god. ISACs? 
you say potato, I say Isaka. <laughs> so uh, to share information amongst various industries. And you know, the, the entire concept behind this is if we share knowledge about our breaches, perhaps it can help somebody else defend against it. Well, this is also the entire concept behind threat intelligence feeds, sharing IOCs, that sort of thing. I guess there's a part of me that sees some value in this at the aggregate, but at the same time, everybody's environment is fairly varied. I don't know how much value there is in hearing about what happened at Bob's budget bait and dialing shop you know, when I'm in the financial industry, there may be some value in finding out campaigns going on against my industry. There may be some value in finding out about broad campaigns. But over and over, we see such focused, targeted, specific campaigns that may not have ever seen an IOC the same way before. And I, and I wonder if we're chasing a false unicorn here about this. And I wonder if if, if this concept of information sharing really isn't as valuable as people think it is. I, I certainly uh, I, I certainly think that we're going to find that to be the case. Um, but, you know, we I guess as he points out, we really don't know how this is going to be implemented because there's there's just not a lot of specificity. I actually read it myself when it came out. It's not a long read. You know, the it's part of the it's part of the the really big budget bill. Um, but the cybersecurity part is it's actually pretty small. I think it's like a hundred pages, but it's, you know, double spaced and wide margins and stuff like that. Not a huge, not a, not a really long read. Um, but it, you know, what struck me is it doesn't really do anything. Right. Not yet. Which is kind of scary in its own sense. Right. Is, is this just a framework to start throwing some random weird actions out there or, or mandates out there? Yeah, yeah, and, and the other thing that, that um, he points out, and what struck me when I read it, is there's really nothing that compels organizations to participate or actually to do anything. It doesn't. It doesn't compel private organizations to share their data. It doesn't compel the government to declassify information and disseminate it. You know, really, it doesn't really do a whole lot of anything. It just seems like a kind of a feel good bill you know where we can say we did something right and, and when it really you know when the rubber hits the road would this really help anyway I, in a timely enough manner for me to actually do anything to change my security stance and stop a breach well like you said you know the threat intelligence is already the concept is already out there you know there you can already subscribe to feeds that are going to tell you if there's threats targeting your industry segment or you know that you, you can get feeds of of iocs you know that which not to be highly cynical but this is the same game that we play with av dad files we're waiting for somebody else to get breached identify it distill it build it into some sort of identifiable format and distribute it and then react to it well, before I, that same thing happens to me i agree all this does is it, it seems to codify that as in some way, shape, or form, some you know something that the government is going to start getting into. I'm not saying that sharing IOCs and other similar information isn't useful. What I'm saying is I, I don't know how useful it truly is. I suspect it may not be that useful. Well, I think that at the end of the day, it's not going to solve the problem. Right. That's the, you know, it, it may solve a problem for some people. 
But, and I think it'll drive the attackers to just vary their techniques enough to get past it, just like they did with AV. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know if I have a better answer, but I. I I do think that you've got a lot of people who are making a lot of money selling this concept and I don't I'm not convinced it's a valid technique yet and and you know I could be wrong or maybe it will improve over time but intuitively when I look at it I I don't see the value yet we have to do something clearly we can't do nothing you're right that's not leadership <laughs> anyway thought leaders never say they always say something. That's right? right. That's right. Share your data. Now. Anyhow, that's our show for the week. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, again, thank you to our Patreon donors. Uh, you can find links to the stories we talked about today uh, at our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And one last thing before we go, I will be uh, speaking at ShmooCon coming up oh, in two weeks. That's right. Uh, January 15th through 17th. Uh, my speaking slot is Saturday morning, 11 a.m. Do you know if those are uh, broadcast, by the way? Are they livecast? I, I don't know. I apologize. I'm sorry. So, really? But if you're there and you're a fan of the show, please come say hi. Or even if you're not a fan of the show. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, just don't hit me like the last guy. But, uh, you know, I was just misunderstanding. It was a bad threat intelligence feed situation there that caused that little issue. But uh, And I'm trying to talk to Jerry into coming. He doesn't have a ticket. So if anybody knows of any Shmoo tickets that you would like to help Jerry purchase, I'm sure he would appreciate that. But True. Uh, I do have a ticket, since I'm speaking, and I will be there. Uh, Jerry may just come hang out for Hallway Con. We're trying to talk him into it. I can't commit him to that yet, though, but we're trying. Yeah, I may be there. Because we'll DC in, in January, come on, how can you go wrong? True enough. We can go talk to some of those Congress people and teach them about, you know, encryption. <laughs> True. Won't they be on <laughs> vacation still? Probably. All right. We'll talk again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.